Whoa! Hey! I don't even know why we're clapping. That man, that's impressive. Bible in a minute, but here's what we did. It's even more impressive. The Bible in 31 weeks. We are at the end, my friends. We are at the end. It's pretty sweet. It's it's really hard to imagine that we're done because I really thought, um, you know, I really thought it was going to be a long, you know, drawn out thing. I, I can't believe we're at the end of this. For those of you who are new or don't understand uh, what I'm talking about, we've been doing the story. Uh, 31 weeks we've gone through this. We're at the end today. It's, it's really hard for me to believe. Um, I, I, I got a chance to talk to Randy Frazee and Max Licato a little bit by email this week and tell them how much we've enjoyed this and how, how incredible it's been for our church and just the things that have gone on around it. I think we've sold almost 9,000 copies of this and uh, some of the White Sox are probably getting ready to go through this because of some connections and just some crazy stories. It, it's really awesome. And the point of this, I go back to the very beginning. Here's what I read for you at the very beginning. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures, we saw a lot of that, and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. That's what this is all about. We welcome you if you're watching on the internet. We welcome all of you. Uh, we're trying to find hope today because it's not about learning the book. It's about living the book. Okay. And the story is basically this in synopsis. It is God created everything perfect in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life was there. And then Adam and Eve sinned and they brought sin and the curse into the world. And the tree of life was replanted in a new place now. And we're not going to be near it. So everything's not going to be the way that it's supposed to be. But God knew all this. He had a plan. He sent Jesus to come down and to redeem us, to pay the price for our sins so that we could be having eternal life even right now as we live and the hope of the resurrection and then someday be reunited with the tree of life, be reunited with God the way that it's all supposed to go. And we're doing the book of Revelation today uh, where we start to see where the upper story and the lower story come together. The upper story, God had a plan all the way through. Everybody didn't understand it. Joseph didn't understand it. Abraham didn't understand it. You know, Peter didn't understand it. But the upper story was getting us to the tree of life again. And the lower story, sometimes it didn't work out very well. For the Apostle John, he was on the island of Patmos. I mean, imagine Alcatraz. It's the best thing I can do for you. John is the last living disciple. All the others have been executed. They've been martyred for their faith. John, instead of being martyred, is exiled to this prison island where he's separated from everything. And for, for some reason, God decides to give John this vision into heaven. And that's what Revelation is. It's a description of what's going on behind the scenes. It's a description of the spiritual war that's going on now and the world that is yet to come and the promise that God wins. And you've got to remember that the first century believers, these are people that are, are being thrown to the lions. These are people that are being dipped in oil and set on fire while they're alive and stuck up on a pole to light Nero's gardens. Right, this is what they're going through. And they need the hope. They need the endurance and the encouragement that comes from, from knowing that God wins. And so that's what the book of Revelation is. Now, little warning right up front. Um, I believe the book of Revelation was written in apocalyptic literature. End times literature. It's in an end times language. Okay? Uh, if you've ever tried to read the book of Revelation and had trouble trying to figure out what everything is, join the club. All right? Here, here's the deal. It was written a long time ago in a language that those people would have understood. And the symbols were things that those people would have understood. I was at a church planting conference this week, uh, and, and there was a guy from England who was speaking. And I have a son-in-law from England. 
So I'm not like, you know, all hip, all down with English stuff, you know, from England. But I know a little bit of the nuances. You know, their swear words are different. Some of the phrases, some of the things that they do are different. And I found myself laughing at this guy when he would make some comments that were supposed to be funny. And nobody else around me was laughing because I was the only one that understood what he was doing. Okay, And sometimes that's the problem with the book of Revelation. I have the same problem when I go speak somewhere out of the country. Uh, I was in Africa. We, We were teaching pastors. My wife and I were teaching on marriage, and I got one of those Harlow moments where I got, you know, kind of fired up, and I said, if any of you people have an affair, I'm going to fly back over here and punch you in the head. And they all just kind of stood there, you know, they all just sat there. Like, and my wife was feeling kind of awkward. She said, he's just kidding. And I said, I'm not kidding. I'll punch you in the head. And then they started laughing. You don't understand the nuances, okay? So that's okay. It's apocalyptic literature. And it's thousands of years old. So you need to understand. You need to study what you, what you can. You need to read what you can. But biblical hermeneutics is about, it's, a, it's, it's the study of being able to understand the culture and the context of how the Bible was written. That's very, very important to us. So, I would encourage you to, to get some help with that. I mean, there's lots of help on the Internet. Um, I would say if, I, if you came to me and you said, what's one resource that I could get that would help me understand the Bible and read the Bible better? It would be a study Bible. Okay, There's lots of different kinds, but I would say the NIV study Bible is still my favorite. It's about a half a page of text and then about a half a page of notes underneath. So you get, you know, you get to a scripture and you're, you know, you're like, I, I don't understand what that, what's a cherubim? You know, what does that mean? Well, right down there it'll say cherubim was a kind of an angel that was protecting the garden. And it'll tell you all that stuff, and it's right there on the same page. So you don't have to go Google it or do any of that stuff. I would encourage you to that. But the problem with with the book of Revelation is that it was never meant to be taken literally. That's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. The, The problem that when we start taking it literally is everything changes. For example, who is the Antichrist? Does anybody know? Well, who do you think the first century church thought was the Antichrist? Nero. He was obviously the Antichrist. When everybody read this letter from John, they were like, oh, that's Nero. Well, guess what? It wasn't Nero. And then, you know, every generation has its own. By the 1800s, it's Napoleon. World War I, it was Kaiser Wilhelm. He, he's the one. In World War II, it was Adolf Hitler. You know, in the Cold War period, it was Khrushchev or Castro. Or maybe it was Gorbachev because he had that little birthmark on his head. Maybe that's a 666 in some, you know, other language, right? Remember that? Some of you remember that? Everybody's like, oh, it's Gorbachev. He's got that thing on his head. Who is it now? I don't even know what they're saying. I started thinking about this week, and I, I had an idea. I thought it might be Derek Rose. <laughs> he might be the Antichrist, but then I realized it couldn't be because the Antichrist has to come back before Jesus. Sorry, Derek. That was just too easy. Can, can I just give you my advice, okay? Well, this is me. You, you do whatever you want. But read and study the book of Revelation. The Bible says that you will be blessed if you do it. But please don't waste a bunch of time trying to interpret it. And, and please don't ever read one person's opinion on the book of Revelation and then go, oh, that must be it, okay? You've got to read all of them. If, and, and here's the other thing. If I ever, like get a brain tumor, become John Travolta, and decide to write a, a book about how I now know that I have ha- figured out the book of Revelation, you have my permission. Take me to Wrigley Field. Chain me to the ivy until I come to my senses. 
You have my permission. Here's what I can guarantee you. No one on earth has a correct interpretation of the book of Revelation. Now, that's that's a crazy thing for me to say, but I'm just going to say it. There are three major views based on the thousand-year period. There's premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. I've studied them all, people. I've got a doctorate in religion, and please understand this. I've decided I'm panmillennial, okay? That means it's all going to pan out in the end. That's all I got. (laughs) I don't want to waste my time. The Bible says very clearly, Jesus even said, no one knows the day or the hour. No one knows the day or the hour when it's going to come back. And yeah, you should look for the signs and you should, you should try to be paying attention, but we're always supposed to be ready. And the reason that Jesus didn't come back in 2012 is because somebody predicted He was going to come back in 2012, so He can't do it. So if everybody just knock off the predictions, maybe Jesus could come back. And the problem here is that, you know, sometimes life really stinks and we don't really like it and we need to know that there is hope for the future. And sometimes life is okay. I talked to a guy last night after the service and he's like, I'm not sure I'm ready to go to heaven. I got things I want to do here. You ever feel like that? I get that. I mean, sometimes we find joy and happiness. Casey talked about that last week. In this world. Like sometimes, even through math, you can find happiness. Billy has 32 pieces of bacon. He eats 28. What does he have now? Happiness. Bacon math, baby. Yeah? One pastor told the story of his five-year-old daughter, whose name was Casey, and uh, she was so excited about kindergarten. You remember that? When your kids were excited to go to school, they are so dumb, they didn't realize how much they were going to hate it later. They were like, oh, I want to go to kindergarten. So Casey's all geared up, you know, about kindergarten. And, and the littler sister, Jamie, is three, and she's just excited about her sister and whatever her sister wants to be excited about. And one day, Casey, the five-year-old, fell down and skinned her knee, and she was crying, and it was bleeding, and her mom was cleaning her up. And little Jamie and little three-year-old wisdom said, don't worry, Casey. If you die, you'll go to heaven. <laughs> and Casey said, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to kindergarten. <laughs> Maybe you're excited about kindergarten. Maybe you're excited about bacon. Maybe you're excited about, I don't know, whatever, your, your, your upcoming marriage or grandkids or whatever it is. That, that's all good. You just need to understand that. that, that there's a, that's a little taste of what's going to be heaven forever for us. I mean, it's okay. It's okay to feel that way. God wants us to have joy while we're here on this earth. That's Paul saying, I've learned to be content in any circumstance. That's good. But remember that John is writing to people who are not in a good place. And I know that a lot of you came in here and you're not in a good place. John's been exiled to a prison island. His friends have all been executed. The, the persecution of the church is horrible, and that's on top of the fact that they were already probably poor and already had all kinds of other things going on. So the message of John in Revelation is that things aren't always as they appear to be. All right? Let's just, let's just leave it at that. Things aren't always as they appear to be. He tells us, if you remember a Christmas sermon I did several years ago, he tells us about the red dragon and how the red dragon, uh, is trying, who is Satan, is symbol of Satan, is trying to destroy us. And this is going on. So if this is happening and the red dragon is in your life right now and Satan's tripping you up and, and, and you're under the curse, you need to understand that things aren't always as they appear to be. And if things are going great and it's bacon day and everything's okay, things aren't always as they appear to be. There's still more. And the beautiful thing about John writing this book of Revelation is that John is the guy with the most first-hand experience of despair and then utter joy. 
Because John was the disciple, if you'll remember, that was at the, at the cross. He was the one that Jesus said, Mom, John's going to take care of you. John, this, you know, this is your mom now, okay? You guys are together. John was there at the moment of despair. None of the rest of them were. And John was also the first guy at the resurrection. John wrote in his gospel, he called himself the other disciple because he didn't want to use his name. And remember this little phrase, I've made jokes about it before. The other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. It's just a little testosterone guy thing in there, you know. And by the way, I won the race and I was the first one there. Why, why is that important? John saw defeat and despair and the cross and the crucifixion. And then John was the first one to see that the tomb is empty. So he understands this. And things aren't always as they appear to be. He knows this better than anybody. So Revelation is really just a book of hope. Okay. We got to this planning of this service. Our worship creative team, um, you know, always tries to work on the things we're doing together. And, and we're doing Mumford and Sons at this service and all kinds of cool stuff. You know, we plan all this stuff together. And, and we, were, we, we were planning it. And my wife is the worship programming director. And, and, and we bring up the title. You know, we got this big sheet of paper on the wall. What are we going to do? And it says, End of Times. And my wife sometimes says stuff before she thinks about it. And she said, Is the End of Times the last one? Yeah, yeah, hon. You know at the movie, when, when it says the end and it starts scrolling up, that means the movie's over. But then again, as I thought about it, it's really not a dumb question because the end of times in the story is really just about the beginning of the rest of our story. You understand that, right? It's just about the beginning of what's getting ready to happen because Revelation is a book of hope. In Revelation 1, John said, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. I'll illustrate what I mean about Revelation. When I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we know what that means because John tells us that represents the seven churches in Asia Minor. Okay, he tells us that later. That still doesn't mean anything to you because you didn't live then and you don't, you know, you don't, you, you don't, you don't go to Asia Minor very often. So that, that part's not really that important to you. It's a great study of the seven churches, but that's not the important part. You just keep reading. And you go, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. There's your answer, okay? In this vision, John sees Jesus. It wasn't like the Son of Man, it was the Son of Man. Jesus is here. And that's what's really the important part. And for the most part, you go throughout this whole story of Revelation, and it's an artistic representation of what's going to happen in the world, in the new world that we live in, in the new Jerusalem, in the new city. And John's trying to pick out these images, and he's like, there's a, there's a river of life, and there's gates made of pearl, and the streets are like gold, and there's sapphires and jewels. I mean, he's trying to, you can just see that he's struggling to try to figure out how to describe it. That's what he's doing. And he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, is the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We know that's going to happen. And there was no longer any sea. Here's another example of reading the book of Revelation and trying to understand it. What does that mean? First time I read that, I thought, well, what's wrong with the sea, man? I like the ocean. I like the lake. What if I want to water ski in heaven? What am I going to do? There's no sea. And then, and then if you think about it or if you study it a little bit, you'll, you'll go back and click in the fact that John is on a what? He's on an island. He's on Alcatraz, except it's way out in the middle of nowhere. And what does the sea represent? It represents the separation from his loved ones, the separation from everything that he loves. That's what the sea represents. And when you understand that, then, then that'll make sense to you. 
There's no longer any sea. I'm sure we'll still water ski. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, here's the good part. God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them and they will be His people and, he, and God Himself will be with them and He will be their God. He's our God now, but there's going to be something special about the time when we get there and we can walk with Him like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. I'm excited about that. And then He said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. This is what's important. Now, as you try to picture what's in heaven, I... I I'm going to show you, this is kind of weird, but I'm going to show you this clip from a movie that theology is really messed up on, but the depiction of heaven is really wonderful. It's an old movie called What Dreams May Come. It stars Robin Williams. And this is a depiction of Robin Williams when he finally gets to see what heaven is all about and how it's going to look. And and again, the the whole thing, don't listen to the theology, just look at the imagery. This is what I picture when John's looking up into heaven. Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. So whatever it is that you think heaven is going to be like, it's going to be better than that. Better than that, better than whatever you think. Better than bacon, better than whatever. Okay. But maybe the will part's not what's interesting to you. Maybe the won't part's interesting to you. What won't be in heaven? The crying, the pain, anger, depression, Alzheimer's, cancer, flag-draped, coffins, pink slips, divorce papers. I mean, maybe that's where you're at in life right now. Maybe like the first century church, it's persecution. That's not going to be there either. John says he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order where we live now has passed away. All those things will be gone. And the new order will be there. Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? Who will transform our lowly body so they will be like His glorious body. All the old things are gone. Your new body can't get cancer. Your new body can't have a problem. You're going to walk around for the first hundred years and all you're going to say is, wow, you look great. Have you lost weight? I mean, that's, that's how, the only conversation you're going to have. Everybody's going to be perfect. I love the story of the old farmer who'd never been to the city before and he, he, he went to this building for the very first time. He saw a multi-story building and it was him and his son and his wife and he left the wife in the car and they went into this building. They were going to do something in this building and they walked in they saw an elevator for the first time and they'd never seen one. They saw these big shiny doors come back and forth, you know, and these lights all around it and they were mesmerized and the old guy just stood there and watched as this little old lady went into this little cubicle and the doors closed and pretty soon the doors opened back up again and a beautiful young brunette came walking out he turned to his son he said son go get your mother none of that will need to happen anymore everything's going to be perfect it's going to be awesome but whether you like the will part of the book of Revelation or whether you like the won't part of the book of Revelation, the important part is the who part of the, resu- of the Revelation. He says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. It means Jesus is there. That, that's the only part that really, really, really matters. Jesus Christ will put His nail-scarred hands up to your face, wipe your tears away, and there will never be tears ever again. We're... Uh, 
I'm going to do a series coming up because we got to this and I'm like, man, I can't just spend one week. We spent 30 weeks on the past. I can't spend one week on the future. So for the next three weeks, I will be preaching on a series called Preppers. There's a show on uh, National Geographic Channel called Doomsday Preppers. And it's about the people that have the, you know, the bunkers and the spam and the guns and they're waiting for the, you know, the end of the world. And there's, you know, you should watch an episode of the show. It's pretty crazy. But, but the other side of that is we really ought to be preparing for the end of the world. And so we're going to take three weeks and talk about that. Uh, for now, what I want to do is just give you my mantra all over again and kind of explain how we should be preparing ourselves for heaven. How should we be preparing ourselves for the end of the world? And, and what I say over and over again around here is that our job as Christians, the reason we're here is to bring heaven to earth and bring earth to heaven. Heaven to earth and earth to heaven. What do I mean? Well, well, how do we bring heaven to earth? Well, remember when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That means it's not always done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God has left us here on the earth while we wait before we go back to bring heaven to earth. Peter says the end of all things is near. Be, be prepared. So therefore be alert, be of sober mind so that you can pray. And above all, end of all things is near. Above all, what should you do? You should love, because love covers over everything. That's, that's what we should do. We should love. We should love. We should, we should bring heaven to earth. Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, but he didn't talk about the kingdom of heaven being then. He talked about the kingdom of heaven being now. It's now. He said the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what was supposed to happen. And the book of Revelation is not a new story. It's the continuation of the story. We're supposed to have eternal life now. I like the way Dallas Willard said it. He said, salvation is being caught up in the life that Jesus is now living on the earth. Your salvation is not about what happens to you after you die. Your salvation is about now and how it changes you now. One of the final promises that Jesus gives us is, when I leave, I just talked about this a couple of weeks ago, when I leave, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is going to come, and He's going to come and be with you. Now I ask you, if our job here on earth is just to sit around and wait for Jesus to come back, why would we need the Holy Spirit? They needed the Holy Spirit in Acts so that they could go out and change the world and they could bring heaven to earth and take earth to heaven. Eternal life in the Greek means life into the age. It starts now. Jesus tied heaven and earth together all the time. He told the disciples, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He told us, whenever you lay up for yourselves treasure, whenever you give, you're laying up for yourselves from here treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. When we're generous here, we're actually sending it on ahead. These two kingdoms are tied together because they're not two kingdoms. They're one. So we love. This is why, as a church, we believe that part of our job is to bring heaven to earth. This is why we sponsor over 1,600 kids in other places and make sure that they've got food and they've got school and they learn about Jesus. This is why we, we do so many of the mission things. That's why we give 10% of the money that comes in away to mission things. This is why we're starting a safe house for girls in the sex slave trade in Chicago. This is why we do adoption. This is why we do all those things. And, and, and this one might throw you a little bit, but it's even in the little things that I believe we're supposed to bring heaven to earth. Uh, so this week, I don't know if you noticed out there, we have new coffee. We changed coffee. We went to fair trade coffee. I think that's, I, I think it's important. I'll show you, I'll show you why. I'll show you why. Let me just play this video. Maybe it'll help you explain it a little bit more. 
Sometimes I'll receive a letter or an email that says, Jonathan, what you're doing with the farmers in Rwanda and Haiti is good, but how do you share the gospel? And I feel like replying back and saying, what you're talking about Sunday mornings is good, but how do you do the gospel? Redemption must be engaged. How we share the gospel is first and foremost engaging the work of people, recognizing their God-given talents, recognizing that they have something to offer, and then coming alongside of them, teaching them how to grow coffee better, blessing them, helping to meet their needs, whether it be orphan care or housing. As we do that, we then earn the right to share the gospel. We live in a generation where there's an opportunity for us to share the gospel by the life that we live. To, to feed the hungry, to, to clothe the naked, to visit the imprisoned, to, to really simply act like Jesus acted. You know, we're all called to engage redemption every day. Every once in a while, God gives us something big to do. Every day, He gives us something small to do. Those small things make a difference. What it's supposed to be about. That's what it's supposed to be about. The reason we're doing that is because my daughter, Becca, uh, she, she was at school in L.A. and she challenged them, how come we don't use fair trade coffee? We're a Christian organization. And they're like, I don't know. And they switched. And, and so then I started thinking, how come we don't do fair trade coffee? It costs, I'll tell you why. Because it costs more money. I mean, that's part of it. We had to get new equipment and it's going to cost more money. But we're supposed to bring heaven to earth. So that's, what we, that's why we do that. We're supposed to be able to do, we're supposed to be able to do those things. We're supposed to be able to engage redemption. I love that. And all the little things we do. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. C.S. Lewis said, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were the, those who thought the most of the next world. Which brings me to the second part of that equation. We bring heaven to earth so that we can bring earth to heaven. One day those who have been adopted into God's family are going to go and be with Him in this perfect place that we can't even imagine. So wouldn't it be the ultimate act of selfishness not to share that with everybody else? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus plainly tells us there are two eternal destinations. One is heaven, one is hell. And the book of Revelation paints a beautiful picture of what heaven is going to be like. And it paints a horrible picture of what life separated from God is going to be like for eternity. So what should we do? We should bring, heaven, we should bring earth to heaven with us. That's what we should do. We should make sure everybody knows about that. That's why we do heaven to earth in Jesus' name. We give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. And we make sure that the, the workers who are picking the coffee beans know about Jesus. And the kids who are in our school in Mathari slums know about Jesus. Because ultimately it's not about bringing heaven to earth. Ultimately it's about bringing earth to heaven with us. This is why we build churches. This is why we plant churches. This is why we help you become disciples who can go out and make disciples. Last weekend, I was at Eastside Christian Church in, in Anaheim, California, in L.A. I, I got to go out there. My friend Gene Apple's the pastor out there, and he invited me to come out and preach. I mean, I, 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 was, I was overjoyed with the opportunity. I wouldn't have normally probably missed, you know, the weekend that I missed, but it was really important for me for two reasons. Number one, Becca's out there, and I got to spend some time with my daughter. But the, number two, really the real reason it was important to me was that I interned at Eastside Christian Church. 31 years ago. I know you don't think I'm that old, but 31 years ago, 
I spent some time at this church, which at that point was a phenomenal church, and it even more phenomenal now. It was a phenomenal church, and I caught a vision for what the church could be. And as I've been thinking, here's, here's the problem. The problem is it might, Jesus might not come back right away. The, the end of the world might not happen right away. And what if there's still a whole bunch of us around 31 years from now? What if 31 years from now, this church still exists? What will it look like? And I want to tell you something. I was inspired by Eastside Christian Church because they're still going on and they're still doing things and they're in, partners with us in, in partnership with us in Africa and it's just phenomenal. It's really, really cool. But as you looked up at, at the stage today and saw high school kids doing a killer job leading worship, you can start to imagine if Jesus doesn't come back... If Jesus doesn't come back, I want to be the Eastside Christian Church that's sending people off. Because a lot of what I learned in that time at Eastside is what happened here at Parkview. And a lot of what happens now at Parkview is our responsibility to go out and take heaven to earth and earth to heaven and other places. Jesus said, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. And if I do, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me where I am. It's a prepared place for a prepared people. So that's our job, is to help people prepare for heaven. In the dome of the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., there is a statue. Go ahead and put this picture up. There's a statue called History. You can't quite see the inscription with the pictures that I could find. But there's an inscription on it, believe it or not, above in the, in the Library of Congress from Alfred Tennyson that says this, There is one God, one law, and one element, and there is one far-off divine event to which all of creation moves. Our forefathers believed that, and I still believe that. And that's why we do everything that we can do. Everything that we can do. That's what's so important. So, so what I'm saying is, it's really great that you get a chance to talk about Revelation, and if you want to sit around and debate that stuff, if you want to, that's all good. But I want to tell you something. The reason that Jesus left us here was not to try to figure out whether we're pre-trib or post-trib reason Jesus left us here was to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. I was at a church planning conference, as I said, this week. And it was good. And, you know, we were, I was a part of things. I had some responsibilities. But it was, it was fun to be there and to think about church planting because I believe that's the way that we're going to be able to change the world. And we're all about that. We're, all, we're very involved in that. But what I enjoyed the most about the week was that at night, the very first night we were there, we met a friend, Dino, and his wife, Christine, and their little boy, and we sat around and talked, and I told him I'd say, hey, so if you're watching, Dino, hey. And he's not a believer. And he's got some reasons why he's not a believer, and there's some legitimate reasons. He grew up, you know, in a situation where the, the faith thing just didn't work out, and he's got some objections and some things. And as we start to get to know each other, we just had, I made an instant friend, and he made an instant friend with me, and we started talking about things. And, and I mean, I didn't convert him. I mean, he, he's not, you know, there's not, nothing crazy happened this week, except that I, I went to bed every night so excited, not because of uh, all the things that I learned about church planting, but because I, I really liked. Dino. I, I really enjoyed this guy and, and I made a new friend. And if you have a friend, the most important thing you can do is not try to help them understand the book of Revelation. The most important thing you can do is help them to understand that Revelation is about someday Jesus is going to come back and we all need to be ready. And that's what I did every night. And, I, and that was more fun for me because that's my calling. That's why God left me here. And that's why He left you here. And in the end, it'll be the end. 
We'll deal with it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You know what? You'll have made your choice. In the meantime, we're supposed to help people be prepared. We're supposed to help people figure out that God wins in the end, that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner, and the only way we can get to a perfect place is by the blood of Jesus Christ. So you need to get in God's family. Gave you a little pink spoon. Didn't steal them from Baskin Robbins. We actually paid for them. But you recognize it. I want you to take it home. Here's, here's why. I worked at Baskin Robbins in high school. Yes, I gained weight and pralines and cream. Those are the answers to your two questions. Okay? Um, brilliant marketing strategy by Baskin Robbins. Because you could look in there and you could go, wow, you know what? I, I don't know which one I want. Oh, here, try sample. I want you to take this little pink spoon home and put it somewhere. And I want you to remember that if life is not going very good for you right now, you know what? The book of Revelation is your little pink spoon. Someday, God's going to take us out of here. There's going to be a new world. There's going to be a new Jerusalem. You're going to have a new body. We're going to be with God. Everything's going to be okay. While you wait, remember the little pink spoon. If everything's good in your life right now and you're excited about bacon or kindergarten or whatever, realize that all it is for you is a little pink spoon of what eternity is going to be like for those of us who are in the family of God. And what's going to happen from now on is going to be incredible. C.S. Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. You probably saw some of the movies along the way. They've made movies about them. And the last one, and just to explain Narnia, Narnia was like the heaven, the new Jerusalem. And these kids who are in wartime in World War II keep getting transported through this wardrobe. They go into this place where they get to be in heaven for a while, and then they have to come back and they have these adventures. And it's this beautifully written story about what the next life is going to be like and what's going on in in the book of Revelation and and what's happening along the way. And Aslan is Jesus. He's the lion. And and in this last one, the last battle, C.S. Lewis writes about the kids being in Narnia again, and they're starting to get sad because they realize that they're supposed to go back to the real world again. And here's what you need to understand. Once we get to that world, you're going to look back at bacon or kindergarten or whatever it is that you think is cool here, and you're going to be like, wow, that was just nothing, because this is incredible. And so Aslan says to the children, well, kids, guess what? There was a railway accident, and you actually have died. And he says, the dream has ended, and this is morning. You now get to stay here in Narnia. I love that. The dream is, this is just a dream. Our eternal destiny is what's important. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked like a lion. But the things that began to happen to them afterwards were so great and beautiful, Lewis writes, that I cannot even write them. And for us, this is the end of the stories, meaning the end of the book series. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Just keep your little pink spoon and know that in the meanwhile we wait. And sometimes it's hard to wait. But we have a foretaste of what's going to happen in the end. We have a job to do while we're here. Bring heaven to earth and bring earth to heaven. And we do that while we wait. Listen, we're going to have communion right now. And uh, some of you are thinking, okay, I'm not sure I'm ready. I can't bring somebody else to heaven with me. I'm not sure I'm going.
The book of Revelation talks about the book of life and everybody whose name is found in the book of life will be in heaven. It'll be perfect. Everything's going to be just the way that it's supposed to be forever and ever. The beginning of the new story. So how do you get your name on the book of life? Well, Jesus already paid the price for it. All you need to do is let him punch your ticket. He'll pay for it. He already did. He paid for it on the cross. All you need to do is accept it. It's free, but you have to accept it. We're going to pray right now. We're going to have communion. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. God, there are people in this room, maybe people listening to me, that need to get their ticket punched. You sent your son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the most popular verse in the Bible because it's an unbelievable promise. So for those people, would you help them to understand that you're really there and that, that they need to just believe, they need to give their heart to you and follow you. You did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's why you sent Jesus. So Lord, if there are people here right now, just let them open their hearts to you and say, Jesus, I accept your gift of forgiveness. I know that I'm not a perfect person. Far from it. So I need your grace in my life. And I accept it. And I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be your disciple. I, I just, I, I'm holding my ticket up in my heart right now and I'm asking you to punch it. Because I need my name on that book of life. Separation from you is going to be horrible. Eternity with you is going to be unbelievably beautiful. It's such an easy choice, Lord. For the rest of us who are here, we just pray that you would help us to remember what a great price you paid, Jesus. That's why we do this sacrament of communion every, day, every week here. That you would just help us to understand what you did for us and, and just be grateful for a moment so that when the times come that we need to wait and we just wish we could be home and that we'll remember that someday we will be and that you're with us now. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, help us to feel the fact that you are with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.